I'd invite you to take your Bibles and make your way to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Find Judges and turn right and you'll find Ruth. We are continuing today in our series, Great Stories from God's Word, with this message today, Ruth, the Road to Redemption. Now we all know that stories are powerful. A compelling story, well told, will grab the mind and the heart of the hearer. There was one article in the Harvard Business Review that was pointing out how important stories are just in life in general. And the article said that stories that develop and sustain tension throughout them cause people to be invested in the story so much so that they can see themselves in the story and identify with the situation and are likely to respond to it because they feel it in their heart. Stories instruct, they inspire, and they draw from the reality of the one of whom the story is being told about to help us in our own reality. We are shown just how important stories are in the Word of God. In the Old Testament, more than half of the Old Testament is made up of narrative stories. It's in narrative form. All of the Gospels and Acts as well are narrative in form. And then the rest of the Bible is interspersed with stories or with narrative. So we can say and be accurate that God has primarily communicated to us through story. Every story is comprised of characters, a setting, a plot, some type of conflict or situation, and then ultimately a resolution. Stories reveal, they teach, and they also inspire. When we approach the scripture, whether it be in narrative form or some other genre, it's important that we ask some questions to be able to understand and to use or implement in our lives what it is that we're learning. The first question that we can ask is, what does the Bible say? This would be the point of observation of who, what, when, where, the terms, the structure, the literary form, the context. And the reason that we ask the question, what does the Bible say, and we practice observation, is because the Bible cannot say what it never said. The second question that we can ask is, what does the Bible mean? And we move from observation to interpretation. It's interpretation of the theme, the occasion, the particular word meanings, the relationship to other passages. And the reason that we ask the question, what does the Bible mean, is because the Bible cannot mean what it never meant. So we observe, we interpret, and then the third question is, how does the Bible apply? Application to your life is important so that you can be not only a hearer of the word, but also a doer. And the Bible can apply to the various settings of life as long as it's consistent with the character of God and with the word of God. Then it can apply in our particular specific situation and we can learn from it. The scripture says that all of the Bible, all of scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out and it's profitable, according to Paul writing to Timothy, 
for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Doctrine is important because that's how we teach. Rebuke is important because that brings conviction to our hearts, something that the Holy Spirit does as he applies the word to us. Correction is important because sometimes we need to be corrected from what is wrong so that we can do what is right. Instruction is important so that we can live the word. And then equipping is important because the Bible has everything you could possibly need for living. It's important as we ask these questions that we also understand many stories in the Bible are descriptive and not prescriptive, meaning that there are certain situations where the story is simply being told, however terrible it may be or however dark the circumstance might be, there can be a principle there to be learned from, but certainly the Word of God is not saying go and do likewise, and it is descriptive rather than prescriptive. It's also important to note that when we read the Bible, we need to be careful to see that some of the passages are situational and not normative, meaning that when we get to some of the circumstances in the New Testament where the scaffolding of the church is being built uh, figuratively, the Word of God is being unfolded, the church is forming, there are some things that are happening during that transition period that may or may not be normative. They may also be descriptive for us and situational. And we need to be careful that we keep God at the center of every narrative in the Bible. That God's redemptive plan for his people and our response to him is a reflection of what God is teaching. So as as I often say when we come to the narrative passages, we don't want to insert ourselves and make ourselves the heroes in the story. God is always the hero in the story. God is always the focus of the message. God's redemptive purposes and that thread of redemption that is woven throughout the entire Bible is always the emphasis, all of which points to the glory of God. Our attention today is on the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. During the time of the judges, Israel was in miserable shape, spiritually speaking. We learned in Judges that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, who was the successor to Moses. They continued, at least for the most part, to serve the Lord during the days of the elders and the generation that was with him and who followed him. But when Joshua and those people passed from the scene, things seemed to fall apart. And they began to follow after idols. They disobeyed the Lord. They did what they wanted. They were disobedient to God. And by the time the book of Judges closes, in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They did as they pleased rather than doing what pleased God. These were dark days that were full of suffering brought about by the rebellion and disobedience and idolatry. In the midst of all of this is the story of Ruth. 
which took place likely between 1160 and 1100 BC in the latter part of the Judges. I think it's likely that Samuel wrote the book of Ruth a little bit later on. Ruth was a part of the Megaloth, which was five books or scrolls that the rabbis would read in the synagogues. And they would read them on particular high days in the religious worship of the days of Israel. Ruth was read during the time of Pentecost because of the harvest overtones that we'll see here in just a few moments. The 85 verses contained in the book of Ruth have been referred to as the most beautiful short story that has ever been written. Part of the judgments that God brought upon his sinful people included famine and war. The book of Ruth opens with a report of famine. And we'll begin reading in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. There's a reference here to ten years passing, and we're not sure if the entirety of verse 1 through verse 5 is speaking of 10 years, or if the marriage of the sons to the wives is speaking to a span of 10 years. But what we know is that some time passed. After they got there as a response to the famine, they encountered some situations that were very difficult to deal with. Elimelech had left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife Naomi, and they'd gone to this place called Moab. Moab has an interesting story in the Bible that is not good. In fact, Moab, this place that was located about 100 miles to the north of Jerusalem, had a wicked start as a nation. Lot fathered Moab through an incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. Moab was a land and a people and a kingdom that was located to the east of the Dead Sea in what is now the kingdom of Jordan. Moabite women were known for leading the men of Israel astray to sin during the time of the Exodus. During the time of the judges, King Eglon of Moab led a coalition to conquer Israel, and they did just that. They forced them into subjection for some 18 years. The situation only ended when Ehud assassinated the king and led a revolt where they killed thousands of the Moabite soldiers. The Moabite king Balak later hired Balaam to curse the Israelites, but his plan didn't work out. God had forbidden the men of Israel to 
intermix and to marry these women who were following after other gods. So let's just say Moab had a mixed history, most of which was not good. It was unrighteous. Elimelech takes his wife Naomi there with their two sons because of this famine. And then something happened. We don't know what, but something happened. And Elimelech died. The sons, Malan and Kilian, took Moabite women for wives, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. Some time passed, and Malan and Kilian also died. So here's Naomi. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's in a foreign land. She has nothing really to show for it. And now she's left with these daughter-in-laws that she doesn't know what to do with. And in a desperate situation, she hears that while she was in Moab, that the Lord had paid attention to his people. And he had provided food for them back in Bethlehem and in the region of Judah. So she starts back toward the homeland with Orpah and Ruth in tow. We don't know how far they got, but they got a little ways down the road. And Naomi says, look, there's no point in you coming with me. I'm not going to have more sons. I'm too old for that. You can just stay here. You can find yourselves new husbands. I'll make my way back and you stay here in the homeland. Apparently they didn't listen to begin with, but Orpah ultimately takes her up on the deal and stays but not Ruth. Now, this might seem like a minor point in this story, but it's really significant. Because what Orpah did was she stayed in Moab, and she continued, by all accounts, to follow after the gods of that land who were false gods. Ruth chose instead to go with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and to follow after her god, which is the one true living god, as we'll see here in just a moment. What I want to show you in these few moments that we have together are four truths from the book of Ruth, which will remind us of how great our God is. Four truths from the book of Ruth that will remind us how great our God is. And the first is this, God loves his people. God loves his people. Ruth clung to her mother-in-law and replied in verse 16 of chapter 1, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. The picture of the love that Ruth demonstrated toward Naomi is really remarkable. It was not required, but it was something that she wanted to share. This is a passage that shows us the depths of love to the point that it's often used in modern marriage ceremonies. Speaking of the commitment that one person has to another and that familial love relationship that we commit ourselves to when we enter into the bonds of marriage or when we enter into a family relationship. 
And that's the love that Ruth demonstrated toward Naomi, even though it was not required. After all, her mother-in-law had already given her a release. She could have well stayed in Moab, and there would have been nothing at all wrong with it. But her love is astounding. She stayed with her widowed mother-in-law, promises to become a part of her family permanently with a commitment that was unending to death, even though she had no prospects of anything other than uncertainty. The Hebrew word in Ruth chapter 1 and 2 that summarizes her love is the word hesed, transliterated, H-E-S-E-D. It is translated as loving kindness or kindness, steadfast love, or loyal love. In the Old Testament, the word is used repeatedly when someone makes a long-term promise. The word hesed is on display throughout Ruth, showing us that love is something that we commit to and that we believe in even before it's something that we feel. Hesed is not an abstract feeling of goodwill. Hesed always entails practical action on behalf of another. And God demonstrated hesed or loving kindness, loyal love as part of his nature to his people. In Exodus chapter 34, in the midst of the rebellion of Israel with the whole golden calf incident, which was so terrible and so disobedient and so disrespectful to God. Moses makes his way back up Mount Sinai to get a second copy of the Ten Commandments. You might recall that he had smashed the first copy because of his righteous indignation over what the people had done in the face of God. He goes up on the mountain and the Lord comes down in a cloud and stands with him there. And the Lord passes in front of him. And Exodus 34 and verse 6 and following says this. The Lord is compassionate and he is a gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Our God abounds in hesed, in faithful love. He abounds in truth. He maintains faithful love, hesed, to a thousand generations forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Hesed corresponds to the unchanging nature of God. And because God's nature is unchanging, God's love is without end. God's love is without human measure. Naomi and Ruth continued on their journey toward Bethlehem. When they got there, the women welcomed them back They were especially happy to see Naomi. They had never seen Ruth before. After all, they didn't live in the days of Facebook where they could have followed along in this 10 years or whatever that followed and see how much weight old Naomi had gained or how much she had lost or maybe how many new lines were on her face or what this daughter-in-law was all about that she had brought into the family. They didn't know any of that stuff. Just here's Naomi. We know her. We've known her in the past and she's come back. And that's pretty amazing. And they welcomed them in. And now Ruth as a foreigner 
was about to see God's provision applied to not only his people, but also to her. Throughout the Old Testament, steadfast love is, a, is something that demonstrates God's promise to save. And it's pointing ultimately toward the Messiah Jesus, as we'll see, who is God's ultimate provision. The second truth is this. God's love also leads him to show grace to his people. God shows grace to his people. Naomi was not exactly feeling all of the love just yet. Her name means pleasant. But when she encounters the people there, she says, just call me Mara. That means bitter. Because the Lord has made me bitter. The Lord has done this in my life. She's lost it all. She's exhibiting raw emotion. There's a transparency here about her situation. Some people have referred to Naomi as the female Job of the Old Testament. But while it might reflect a raw emotion and the reality of the circumstance that she found herself in, I think there's even a higher principle that's at play here. It was common among the people of God who were the chosen people, to understand that God is completely sovereign. So Naomi, recognizing the pain of the situation, was also submitting herself to the reality that God is sovereign over all. And if we're going to praise God when things are pleasant, then we have to trust God when things are bitter. As an older widow, she had no significant means. She was in a precarious situation. She said the Lord had brought her back empty and had opposed her and had afflicted her. Have you ever felt like that in the circumstances of life? You went from pleasant to bitter, from zero to 60 in just a few moments, and you find yourself in a place you didn't want to be, you never thought you would expect, and you're in a situation that you got to deal with. I want you to know today, no situation and no response that we have toward a situation will change either the sovereignty of God or the power of God to work in the midst of the circumstance. So we yield ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we know that he is a good God. And even if it feels like he has brought us to the place where we are broken and empty and almost alone, he has not left us. And he has a plan for us. Ruth asked, can she go into the fields and gather grains or glean as it was what was left over? This was a common practice for people who did not have fields of their own. They would go to the fields of others after the main harvest had already been taken. And they would make their way through those fields and they would glean whatever was left over, put it in their container, and take it back home as their provision. You can still see this at work in places like Eastern Europe where the harvester will come through, the crop will be gathered, and after the crop is gathered, the people of the villages pour into the fields and they begin to glean whatever's left over 
And they take it back for their own provision, also for the provision of their animals. Chapter 2 and verse 3 says that she happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who also was from Elimelech's family. Now, I would put this word happened in quotation marks here. Or if I were writing, I would italicize the word happened, that she happened to be in this position. It was not by accident at all. It was because the good hand of God had led her to that moment, and she's in a place where she can experience grace that is undeserved. God was about to show his grace to Ruth and to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz, the owner of this field, and also the one who was related to Elimelech, takes notice of Ruth as she's there gleaning. He wants to know who the young woman is. He asks his servant, who was overseeing the harvest, who she was. So he tells Boaz that she's a young Moabite woman who's come back from Moab with Naomi, her mother-in-law. Boaz tells her to stay close to the female servants, and he lays the law down to tell the male servants to steer clear of this Moabite woman. And Ruth, in response to the grace that this man showed, fell down. She bowed down on the ground, and she said to him, chapter 2 and verse 10, Why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? This word favor is the word grace. Boaz told her that what she had done for her mother-in-law had been fully reported to him. She did not do what she had done for nothing. God blessed it. And because she took Naomi as her family and because she made the commitment to follow after Naomi's God, who is the one true living God, the one true living God showed grace to her. And Ruth talks about finding favor three times. She began by seeking to find favor with someone who could rescue her and Naomi, a gracious landowner. Two, she asked Boaz why she had found favor in his eyes. And three, she rejoiced in finding favor in the sight of such an honorable man. Boaz modeled the love that God has for his people and also the love that we should have toward one another. And the idea of finding favor in the Old Testament is a common phrase. And it demonstrates that one who is in a position of authority, one who has power, one who is greater than another, reaches down and extends unmerited favor to someone who is in a lower position. Finding favor in the eyes of God means that God, who is the all-powerful, eternal, eternal creator, redeemer, and sustainer of all, has reached down to us so that we might find favor, that we might find grace in his eyes. Back to our story in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, Moses pled with God to continue with the people in spite of their rebellion surrounding their idolatry. And Moses interceded on behalf of the people. Let's draw a parallel here in the book of Ruth. Boaz is getting ready to intercede on behalf of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. 
This is all pointing a beautiful picture of how Jesus Christ has interceded for us. That we might marvel at the grace of God. That the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. Is what the book of Titus says. So God shows love to his people. God shows grace to his people. And then the third truth is God provides refuge for his people. God provides refuge for his people. Now Ruth came to Boaz in a bit of desperation. And she needs provision. Boaz said to Ruth, chapter 2 and verse 12, May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel. Now watch the next part of this verse. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. All of the references in the Old Testament which point to finding refuge under wings ultimately point to finding refuge under the wings of the Almighty. Rarely was the phrase used of one person finding refuge under the wings of another. The imagery originated in Exodus chapter 19 and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where in the Exodus, God's people are seen as being gathered under the wings of God, finding refuge under the wings of God. And the psalmist brings this forward in Psalm 17 and verse 8, where he prays, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Or Psalm 36 and verse 7, where he says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 91 and verse 4 says, He will cover you with his Pinions and under his wings you will find refuge because his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And then in the New Testament, Jesus used the same imagery when he said that he longed to gather Jerusalem under his wings like a hen would gather her chicks, but they were not willing. Or what about when the woman afflicted with the issue of blood for so many years came to Jesus? She touched the hem of his garment. The word for wings and the hems of the garment are from the same word in Hebrew. New Testament believers ultimately are hidden with Christ in God. So what this is telling us is that we can take refuge in God for our protection and our deliverance. And we get in trouble when we try to seek refuge in anything else, when we try to seek refuge in the pleasures of the world, and we try to seek refuge in our own selfishness, and we try to seek refuge in some other manner of escape. And all along the Bible is saying there's only one place to find refuge, and that is under the wings of an almighty God. And the scripture here is setting up Boaz an example, as an example of God's care for his people and how they can take refuge in him. He's telling us that we can find refuge under the wings of the Almighty no matter what the storm is that we find ourselves in in life. God's protective covering over us will see us all the way home to be with him in eternity. And sometimes we get mixed up between the temporal and the eternal. 
And we think that if something really bad and really significant happens to us, even to the point of death in the moment, in the temporal, that somehow God has forgotten his care for us or that somehow God has abandoned us. And that is not true at all because life, even at its longest point, is nothing but a vapor. And yet God keeps his children under his wings for eternity. And he can be trusted. And this leads me to the fourth and final truth. God redeems his people. God redeems his people. Now Naomi asked Ruth where she had gathered the barley. Ruth, where have you been working today? Where did you find all that? And Ruth begins to tell the story. And Naomi said, may the Lord bless the man who noticed you. And Ruth tells her about Boaz. And Naomi says in chapter 2 and verse 20, may the Lord bless him because he's not abandoned his kindness. Listen to this. To the living or to the dead. What's she saying? I lost my husband. I lost my sons. I lost one of my daughters-in-law. My one daughter-in-law has come back with me. I have nothing. But you know what? The Lord remembered me. The Lord didn't just remember me. The Lord remembered and honored those who are dead as well. He's taking care of my family. And she continues and she says the man is a close relative. He's a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. Now this is foreign language to us in a modern age. But the requirement in the Old Testament was for a relative to marry a widow in the family. It originated in Deuteronomy 25. And it was called a leveret marriage. And in order to care for the widow, to take care of whatever land and property and things that were left over, it was specifically supposed to be a brother who would stand in and do this so that the family line would be carried on. Boaz was about to expand on the specifics of that provision that are told of earlier in the scripture. Naomi tells Ruth to get herself ready, put on her best clothes, and go to the threshing floor. That's where Boaz would be. She was to go, and she was to lie down at his feet after he's gone to sleep. And there is no hint of immorality here. Some have tried to make that out of this passage. I don't think there's a hint of immorality at all. I think it's proximity of Ruth to Boaz. And he wakes up at some point. And as you might imagine, he was startled. Just imagine waking up and there's a woman laying on your feet. I mean, you're, you're rubbing your eyes and you're thinking, what is this I'm seeing in front of me? What's happening here? So he asked, who are you? And Ruth replies in chapter 3 and verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Boaz agrees and He refers to her as a woman of character. Now, interestingly, in the order of the original Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth is placed directly after Proverbs 31, telling us at a minimum, Ruth is the embodiment of the Proverbs 31 woman, that her character exhibits what the scripture is talking about. And in the story, the drama has been building. Remember I told you how powerful stories are? 
And how the points build up to the point that we find ourselves immersed in the story and, and we're finding ourselves sympathizing with the characters and here we are. At the end of chapter 1, Naomi and Ruth have gone to Bethlehem. and Naomi's bitter and she's broken without much hope. In chapter 2, Boaz shows great kindness to Ruth and brings hope back to the story. In chapter 3, Naomi comes up with a plan and she sends Ruth to Boaz. And now here in chapter 4, we come to the pinnacle of it all. And it seems like there's a clear path to redemption, but there is a complicating factor that is thrown into the mix. Boaz goes out to the city gates. In those days, the cities would be walled. They would have at least a primary entry gate. At that entry gate, the men of the families and the men of the city, when they weren't working, they would gather there and they would chew the fat and they would talk about the events of the day and they would discuss business and they would make deals and they would do things that men would do. So Boaz goes out and he finds another man who is also related and apparently has first position or right of first refusal with this whole kinsman redeemer situation for Naomi and Ruth in the property that's left over. He initially proclaims his intent to stand in. And then as they say, apparently he got the rest of the story. Boaz tells him, well, if you're going to do that, it's Naomi. And then it's the property, whatever's left. She's trying to sell it. And then it's Ruth. There's a whole lot wrapped up with this. And he says, hmm, I don't think I can do that. Now, we don't know exactly why he couldn't do it. Maybe it was too much for him to take on. Maybe he had a wife of character back at home who would have said, you're not doing that, big boy. You've already got a wife and a family. This doesn't seem like the best situation. We don't know exactly what happened. But for whatever reason, he backs out of the commitment and Boaz instead steps in as the kinsman redeemer. He steps in as the one who would rescue Ruth and Naomi and bring them into his family. So he does just that. He takes Ruth as his wife. The choice of words tells us that Boaz's redemption was intended to point to God's redemption of his people. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 13 and following, and then Psalm 74 and verse 2 refers to how God redeemed his people during the days of the Exodus. Now watch this. The words used for redeem and purchase in Exodus 15 and Psalm 74 are the exact same words that are used of redemption here in Ruth chapter 4. Just as God had redeemed his people out of an impossible circumstance, Boaz is stepping in to redeem Ruth and Naomi from dire circumstances. And this is pointing us ultimately to the fact that Jesus Christ has stood in for us and that he has redeemed us and that he has bought us back from death and hell and the grave, that he has redeemed us from our sins and we've been bought with a price. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, 
but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. We are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ who paid the ultimate price for us by dying on the cross, by the sinless lamb of God taking our place so that our lives are not our own. We belong to him. And the beauty of the New Testament language takes us in even deeper because Jesus is seen as the bridegroom of the church and the church is seen as the bride of Christ, that we are married to Christ, that we are redeemed from our worthless ways and we're reconciled to God. Now here is where the story of Ruth takes a profoundly important turn. The Lord granted Boaz and Ruth a son. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 14. In response to what God has done, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. Naomi joyed in the birth of her grandson, and they named him Obed. According to Ruth chapter 4 and verse 17, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth's son was the grandfather to King David. And this important genealogy closes out the book, tying us in with the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So the story of Ruth is significant not only because it's a story about love and grace and refuge and redemption, but right here in the middle of the Old Testament is a book named for a non-Jewish woman, and the message comes through in the genealogy. You see, genealogy often referred to men, fathers having sons, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on. Genealogy was highly significant to the Jewish culture as the chosen people, and it remains so even today. The genealogy in Ruth connects with the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, and Matthew's genealogy in the New Testament traces the origins of Jesus from an earthly standpoint, starting from Abraham. And then Luke takes us all the way back to Adam. But now watch this. In Matthew's genealogy, four women are mentioned. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Ruth. All of them were Gentiles, and three of the four were guilty of sexual immorality. And what that tells us is this. God loves and redeems sinners. There's no other message here but that God loves and redeems sinners. And that through that, God has a plan not only for the nation of Israel, but God has a plan that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Jesus Christ in fulfillment of the promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15. Reiterated to Abraham and the covenant in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and so on. God loves and redeems sinners. And he has a plan for the nations. And it speaks to us in this way. First of all, 
We must yield ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That God is sovereign over all. We do not qualify that. We believe it. We have a sovereign God. Nothing happens by accident. God is always working out his good plan. And when we are redeemed, we have the responsibility to be faithful to him, to make his message known, to share the gospel with people who don't yet know him so that they too can find the love and the grace and the refuge and the redemption that is found only in Christ. This is the message of this beautiful story. Only 85 verses in the book of Ruth, but so profoundly important to God's message of redemption. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Perhaps something in this message today has touched your heart. If you don't yet know the Lord by faith in Jesus, if you've not been saved, today could be the day where God would rescue you and redeem you from your circumstance, from your sin, from your separation. He can be trusted. Will you trust him? Believer, family of God, are you living in such a way that your life could be characterized as a person of character, a person of great faith, a person of obedience, a person who is grateful for all that God has done? Would you thank him just for a moment for how good he's been to us and for giving us his son? Father, we want your will to be our will, your way to be our way. We thank you for your word and for your spirit. We thank you for how it all weaves together. And while this is an important story, a narrative in real time that happened in the history of Israel. It's really a snapshot in the greater redemptive story that you've given us in your word. And I just want to thank you today that you're the Redeemer God. And for all that you've done for us, may we be a church that's humbled by that and directed to honor you in all things. We give this time of invitation and response over to you. If there are decisions or steps of faith that need to be taken, I pray that people would come in these moments. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.